Well, it is good to see you all this morning. In Ezra chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in just a moment from verse 6, in in just a moment, and we're going to finish the chapter this morning. We started chapter 4 last week, and what we saw was the transition of how everything was going so well that something bad was bound to happen. Things were going so well. The temple project had begun. The people were gathered together as one body. They, they knew what they needed to get done. The foundation of the temple was completed in chapter 3, and they worshiped God. And then in chapter 4, they faced opposition. Opposition from the people of the land. And these people came to them offering help to to, to come. Hey, we want to help you build the temple for we worship God as you worship God. We, We offer sacrifices. And the short of the story is God's people knowing that these people were divided in their worship. They may worship God occasionally. They're very syncretistic, right? So they have many religions and many gods that they worship. And they knew that they were going to be enemies to them. They said, "Uh uh-uh. No, thank you. Take your help somewhere else. And so as they rejected the offer, opposition began to rise against them. A massive campaign of discouragement began. A massive campaign. I mean, everything you can think of was happening from, you know, anonymous mailers and to cyberbullying and and all the things that you can think of, all the ways to, to terrorize someone, to make them to be afraid to do what the Lord has called them to do. Bribery. Ridiculous government regulations. Think of the EPA. Think of what OSHA has done to to many businesses. Lobbyist propaganda that that was spread that gave such a bad taste of the Jewish people in that area and in that place from anyone who had authority. So now as we are about to read the text, I want to give you a couple things I want you to watch out for as we read the passage. Number one. I want you to first listen to all the names of the different kings that are going to come up, that are going to be named. Some of them I'm going to pronounce right and some of them I'm not, but you'll never know unless I stutter. Then you're like, he's, he's totally guessing on that one. Second, I want you to notice what the Jewish oppressors are upset about in their letter. I want you to hear what they're really upset about. Three, I want you to notice the accusations that they make before the king. Fourth, I want you to notice how this king is now turned against God's people. Unlike how we saw in chapter one, how the heart of King Cyrus was stirred to do the Lord's will and to let his people go back to the land. But we have a lot to read, so let's get started in Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Oh, man. Don't knock that over. And in the reign 
or of Ahasuerus. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, of Judah and Jerusalem. In those day, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Midaretha, and the Tibil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, and Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nation, whom the great and noble Osnaspur deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is the copy of the letter they had sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, give, send greetings. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious, wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known, king, to the king, that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are, fini are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition was stirred up from of old. That was why this city was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, its walls finished, you will then have no possession in, possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer. To Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, in the rest of the province of beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you have sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that, that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled the whole province beyond the river, to whom the tribute, whom tribute custom and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribes and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the works 
the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. There's a lot here, and there's lots to do, and certainly from this reading, we can be confused if it's the first time reading this passage. Made up in our text is two letters, if you didn't catch that. The first letter was of the opposition that is in Judah, those people of the land, those who are of, of, of Samaria. They wrote a letter to the king of Persia to have him give them the authority to revoke the Jews from doing any work in Jerusalem. The second letter is back from their king. It's a response from the king, and it's granting them permission to stop all the work, no matter the cost. Stop it all. Here's the thing about Ezra 4, verses 6 through 24. It is not arranged chronologically. It is arranged thematically. These letters are not letters that were written prior, or directly prior to the events in verses 1 through 5. These are letters that were written about a half a century later than what we've previously been studying in chapters 1 through 3. Bear with me. We have to do a little history to understand what's going on, and we'll work with a few dates, and if it doesn't make sense to you, you can look up in your study Bibles and things like that and catch an idea of when the dates of these certain kings reigned, and so you'll know when these, these uh, letters were written. At the end of verse 5, which is part of the original group of people who were taken back to the land from King Cyrus, that was happening around 537 and 538. And verse 5 extends it all the way to the next king, King Darius, who reigned from 522 to 486. And then in verse 7, we see how uh, open opposition continued 50 years or so later. Verse 6 jumps about 50 years to King Ahasuerus, is one of the ones I'm having a hard time pronouncing, also known as Xerxes, where they began to petition him. Now, you may recall King uh, Ahasuerus. I always pronounce it our house, but the more I read it, it's like, that can't be right. We'll just say our house. He is the king during the time of Esther. And that possibly could be the reason why he never replied back to them. And after that king was murdered by his brother, Artaxerxes claimed the throne because he's the one who killed his brother. And he did this in 464 B.C. So 538, 537 is chapters 1 through 3, that time frame, to now the writing of these letters because they're written to Artaxerxes in 464. They're facing opposition again with letters. So by verse 8, this letter is written to Artaxerxes. We know that it happened around 464 B.C. And this happened around the time of Ezra, the man, and Nehemiah, the man, come on the scene. 
Ezra comes back to the land around 5 or 458 B.C., so right after these writings. And Nehemiah comes back to the land in 445 B.C. And so Ezra breaks into the narrative in verse 6 through 24, and he begins to weave together that early opposition to this opposition that they have been facing for decades now. And then in verse 24, he takes us right back to verse verse 5, left off, where the first group faced opposition and discouragement. They stopped building They stopped building the temple until the second year of King Darius. And that means that they would have started the building back around 522 B.C. There's a 15-year hiatus of not building the temple. So I know that's a lot, and you may not have caught that, and that's sort of okay. Just say my word that there's a big gap in history and time, and, and Ezra is inserting in here this opposition that they are facing currently to previous opposition. So my question is, is why would Ezra stop in the middle of a story? We, we tell stories chronologically. It's how we do it. Why would he stop in the middle of a story at verse 6, skip over 50 years, and begin to recount the history of his current plight and the Jews' current plight in oppression and their struggle to rebuild the city and the walls? of the city, not the temple, right? Did you catch in the letters? The accusation was they want to rebuild the city, not the temple. Well, let me illustrate it this way of why he would want to do that. Let's assume that you don't have a clue where butterflies come from. You don't know that butterflies come from caterpillars. I'm taking up the task of showing you and teaching you where butterflies come from. So let's take a field trip to the Georgia Southern Botanical Gardens. We'll all put our masks on, and we'll go to the Botanical Gardens, and we'll struggle to talk to each other, but we'll do it. And we'll we'll look around for a butterfly. We'll see one. We'll see a beautiful monarch butterfly. I mean, just a gorgeous monarch butterfly in all of its splendor fluttering around the gardens, fluttering around the, the flowers. And we're just amazed by it, right? That's the butterfly. And then I'll point down and say, see, on this leaf, this, this caterpillar who's just sulking along, slowly eating the leaf, one leaf at a time, before eventually he'll turn himself into this little hard cocaine, cocoon, cocoon, not cocaine, cocoon, and hang off of a leaf, and, and by the way, those caterpillars are also very magnificent looking, if you've ever seen one. They are stunningly amazing, right? But, I'll, but I'll say, this process called metamorphosis, this caterpillar who's this slimy, sulky little creature is going to turn into this magnificent monarch butterfly. Would you believe me? Well, if you've never heard of the process, you may not. You probably might be real astonished. What if I took you down to Florida And I showed you one of the biggest oak trees I have ever seen. Right in, in Orlando, I saw this oak tree last, this past January, out by a hospital, uh, Orlando Hospital. 
and it was the most ridiculous, huge oak tree I've ever seen in my life. It is so big that the branches have dipped down so far that they have themselves have grown under the dirt and up again. It would make this building, I know it's not a magnificent building, it's not huge, but it would make this building look tiny. It is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. I mean, you would be amazed, I think. And then I'd reach in my pocket, and I'd pull out an acorn. And I said, would you believe that tree one, at one point was this little acorn? Would you believe that? That something this small could turn into something like that? see, the reality is, is most of us are not shocked by those illustrations. We're not shocked by those things, by those realizations. We're not shocked by the reality of those things. But those transformations are miraculous. They really, they truly are. And they don't land on us because the reality is, for us, it's something that we're familiar with. And whatever we are familiar with, as amazing and as miraculous as it is, we just naturally take it for granted. You know, when we read good biographies or we hear the stories of faithful brothers and sisters who persevered in the faith, who have endured tremendous opposition, trials, suffering, and persecution, we tend to think, we tend to think the same way and to take, take for granted their endurance and their perseverance as being something that just happens, that it's just inevitable, that it's just obvious, that it's automatic, just like the caterpillar or the acorn. Men like Charles Spurgeon, who suffered immense physical pain daily, who was in constant attacks from, and opposition from those who wanted to soften the gospel message, was his endurance just automatic? No, it's not. Endurance and perseverance, that which all Christians are called to, are a miracle of God's faithfulness to his people. So when Ezra inserts here thematically writing to us, he's inserting here a hundred years of history. What is Ezra doing? Ezra is showing to us something that we often take for granted. And that is God's faithfulness to his people to bring about their endurance and their perseverance, which fuels our faithfulness and our worship. He squishes together a hundred years of oppression. And he's saying, look back. There has always been tremendous opposition, years of stagnation and faithfulness on, on our part, but seeing how God has pers persevered his people. Will you not then persevere now and be faithful? Ezra doesn't tell us here in chapter 4, but the blaring truth to those he is writing to, pointing to, the faithfulness of God, spoiler alert, the temple gets built. The temple gets built. It's finished. And so inserting here, what is he saying? God's faithfulness to his people. We're always going to face opposition. Let's just be faithful. It's going to happen no matter what. 
And he's showing him once again how the Lord, their God, brings about perseverance of his people even to the end. To not take advantage and for granted endurance and the perseverance that God has for our time. Now we know, and we have the benefit of knowing that this first group of people, the chapters 1 through 3 people, have a century of troubles ahead of them. Even after the temple is rebuilt 20 years later, so 516 is when the temple was rebuilt, they didn't know it, but we know it. The first readers of Ezra knew this as well. And they knew the reality of trouble and opposition would dog them every step of the way. The first group was halted by the campaign of discouragement for 15 years. For 15 years, no work was done on the temple. And then opposition would increase over time. Especially now, as Artaxerxes did hear the letter that was penned by these professional scribes who accused the Jews of being a dirty, scandalous people who won't pay their taxes. They'll dishonor the king and will work to subvert the authority of the king and to retake their land. It was an indirect threat to the king and his authority, wasn't it? If you don't act, you're going to lose it all. You don't want these people rebuilding the city or its walls. They will work against you. They won't pay their taxes, and guess what that will do? That'll hurt the revenue. You know, the stuff that you use to buy your food, the way you, for your lavish lifestyle, it's going to hurt, your, hurt everything. And then they're going to work to subvert your power. Oh, great king, aren't you glad that your faithful servants have told you this knowledge so that you can act? Boy, they sure know how to make a king feel good about himself, don't they? It's exactly what politicians want to hear, isn't it? And they go right at the place what politicians fear the most. And what is that? Power. I was trying to help you there. Power and control. What do they not want to lose the most? Power and control. In all actuality, in all reality, the revenues accumulated by the Jews was minuscule compared to the rest of the kingdom of the empire. Yeah, they have rebelled against other kings before. That was true. But militarily, Judah was nothing at this point. They, could, they couldn't fight their, 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 their way out of a wet paper bag. And this letter worked. The king wholeheartedly granted their request to protect himself, and he gave them full authority to do whatever it took to stop them immediately. What did it say? They went in haste to the Jews in Jerusalem, and by force. You can just go ahead and insert there with violence. The real kind of violence, not the, the verbal violence that people say today. That's garbage. This is real. Real violence. And they were forced to stop rebuilding the city. This again was in the time of Nehemiah, who was still in exile. And when we get to Nehemiah, we're, we're going to see this, but at this time, Nehemiah 
was still in exile, and he was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes. And when Nehemiah got the news from his brother who was in Jerusalem that the city was in complete disrepair, and that for almost a century now, the city was just not getting done. Oppression and opposition was against them in so many ways. It broke the heart of Nehemiah. And he wept, and he mourned, and he prayed, and he fasted that the Lord would grant them favor. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord answered the prayer of Nehemiah. And the Lord used Nehemiah to change the heart of Artaxerxes. And just as verse 21 tells us in chapter 4, Artaxerxes' letter says, until a decree is made by me. So they do that until something else changes, until I change my mind. That's exactly what happens. He sends a decree and changes it. But in that time period, there is a century of lessons for us. It's why Ezra inserts this century of suffering and oppression into chapter 4. It's because it shows us what it means to endure and persevere. A century of God's faithfulness to his people to persevere his people in the face of direct institutional opposition and oppression and despite their lack of faith and trust. So he's pointing us to this hundred years saying, do you see the trouble that you are facing now? It hurts. It's hard. And it's been like this for a hundred years. And, and I'm pointing to you before because it's been like that for centuries of people. But God has always been faithful to us. Let's trust him. Let's fear him over man and be faithful to what he has called us to to do. Essentially, that's what Ezra is putting in here for. Church, are we not called in the same situation? Hasn't the church faced in various ways over various centuries and time opposition? And like the words of Paul to the new church in Lystra, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what then can we gain from this history about endurance and perseverance? I have four I want to share with you. First, and this is flying about 30,000 feet, the prosperity gospel is once again put in, as, put in its place as not only anti-Christian, but garbage the voices of the prosperity gospel comes out of America to the rest of the world. It tells people that if you follow Jesus and if you have enough faith, then he will give you all the material wealth in health that you will ever need. Not to mention the, the softer version of the prosperity gospel that is wreaking havoc even in our own country. It says that the gospel is all about feeling better about yourself feeling successful and being happy. God wants you to be happy and successful. Isn't that a wicked ideology? And isn't that a far cry from 
the story of God's people here in Ezra 4. Isn't that a far cry from our Savior who told his disciples that foxes have uh, foxes and birds have better homes and provisions in this life than he, ha- he has? Isn't that a far cry from the history of, of Christ's church? Absolutely. But I think there's also a warning to us to not be practical believers in the prosperity gospel. To say that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the way that we we have our expectations of what we think we deserve, good or not, the good things that we think we deserve can be very prosperity gospel-like. Because what does God owe us? And we look over history, most Christians experience trials and suffering. And when we can grasp that truth, that reality, then we can put our expectations at that same level. You know, often our frustrations reveal what we are trusting in. When we get frustrated about certain circumstances or we get frustrated at someone else, why is that? Mainly because we probably have unreal expectations. We've set those things. And in the Christian life, we have unreal expectations that we deserve always the blessings of God. Second, long periods of time may pass without the open blessings or display. Again, chapter 4 is a 100-year history lesson for us. That's, that starts from Zerubbabel and Jeshua that lead the people back into the land to rebuild the temple to this period of opposition in 464 when Artaxerxes takes the throne and, and the letter is written. There's a lot of time in between, isn't there? Sometimes generations will pass in which it seems as if relatively little happens that we might call amazing or spectacular in the church. No great awakenings, no revivals or reformations of the church where the Holy Spirit pours out God's mercy and grace in in a very special way. Not every Sunday is Pentecostal Sunday, Pentecost Sunday at Sovereign Grace Church. The greatest awakenings just seems so long ago, centuries now. The Reformation was started over 500 years ago. Yes, we are still reforming, and we may desire these things, and we may pray for these things, but that doesn't mean that the Lord will always grant them. This is His work alone, and it's in His timing alone. And truth is, the the growth of his church and his people is hardly uninterrupted and constant. The causes may vary. The causes may vary from personal or corporate sin on, on our part, in which the Lord may discipline or chastise his people, or for his own sovereign purposes that are only known to him. 
but the effect of it is still the same, isn't it? There could be spiritual dryness, almost like a desert-like mentality. We feel dry, and we feel alone. Apathy can happen in the routine of everyday life. Tasks of faithfulness seem harder and harder and harder. And the temptation at those times is to do what? To be resentful toward God. To be resentful toward God. To maybe even be jealous toward others and maybe other churches where seemingly they're growing and they're flourishing. We may see others and what they are doing. And we may feel that way. But maybe the season of why we are in that dryness or in that place is because the Lord has his sovereign purposes in it for us to see. To see our own hearts. Our own hearts of, 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 of how fickle and proud in the things that we think we deserve and what we do not have. When a church, when a pastor, when its members and Christians don't experience an outpouring of God for seasons and dryness in the church and, and personally for long periods of time, it can be hard and painful. I've often heard it said that when those times come, people like to look to the past and they often exaggerate the blessings of the past but let's not exaggerate the blessings of the past at the sacrifice of growing cynical toward the present and let passive-aggressive remarks take place. We may not be living in great movements of the Lord like Martin Luther and John Calvin and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, but we are not to despise the times and the days that the Lord has placed us in. We are called to endure and to persevere in faithfulness, to rely on him in all things, to rely on his word, to rely on this Holy Spirit, even in those seasons of dryness. Third, Seasons of trial, suffering, or persecution can often wear us down to the point where we lose sight of the Lord. At the time of this, fast forward in chapter 4, this is again the same time Nehemiah discovered that the Jews were, were in great trouble and shame. And why? Because they abandoned the rebuilding project of the they were so discouraged and beaten back that they, that they lost sight of why they had been brought back to the land in the first place. And more importantly, they lost sight of God's promises and his faithfulness to them. In fact, when, when Ezra the man is sent back to them in 458 B.C. to, to restore the worship of, of the temple, one of the first things that he does is he brings back the faithful exposition of the scriptures. I can't wait to get to that passage, by the way. Over this long time of discouragement, 
Israel is in such poor spiritual condition. And even when Ezra got on the scene, things didn't happen immediately. It would take another 14 years before they saw any kind of real renewal and repentance and an outpouring of the Spirit of God in a large scale. The same kind of situation we see in Ezra 4, 5 and verse 24. They lost sight of God and they became weak, spiritually depleted, and and overcome by the fear of man. Of, of course, we, we should and we can. we can. We can sympathize with them. Let's not, let's not look at them and, and, and derision, them, derision and judge them as if we are better because we should sympathize with them. Enemies have came against them. They threw everything that they could at them. They slandered them before the king. How could we even expect them to flourish in that environment? So yes, we certainly can sympathize with their humanity and their frailty and how easy it is to be susceptible to the fear of man and oppression around us. But brothers and sisters, when we are opposed and when we are tempted to despair, this is where we not look to man and see how big they are, but where do we look? We look to Christ. We look to Jesus himself, who was despised and oppressed and slandered and detained and accused and killed, yet without sin he endured. You know what I found so interesting about this passage? The accusations in the letter that those fancy scribes wrote out to the king against the people they sure sounded a lot like the accusations that Jesus faced. Pilate was told that Jesus wasn't going to pay his taxes. That Jesus was going to subvert the authority of Caesar. And if you don't kill him, you're going to subvert the authority of Caesar. He's going to lead his group of people in insurrection. God's people are always going to face opposition one way or another. And they will slander us. And guess what? They're going to pick up on certain things, things that we, things that we believe. as exactly what Jesus said. They'll pick on certain things, they'll cherry pick certain truths, and then they'll change them, and they'll spin them, they'll spin these biblical truths, and they'll slant it in a certain way, and spin them in a certain way, in order to slander you, and in order to slander Christianity. Same thing happened to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of Jesus. Don't lose sight of him. Don't look away from him. I I love Colossians 3 for this very reason, because it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amazing! Set your mind on the things that are above, through trials, through suffering, opposition, and persecution. He is making us more like himself. 
metamorphosis, transformation, taking tiny acorns and squishy caterpillars and making mighty oaks and glorious monarchs. Keep your eyes fixed on the things that are above. Be astonished and amazed at the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of God. And when they come, when some puny man comes to you and tells you that you're a bigot and you're intolerant, you will respond in kind and in faithfulness to Christ because God is so much bigger than puny man and what man can do. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Fourth, and this is a hard one, suffering and trials can also be a result of sin. We have to be careful here because this is a delicate matter. Not every trial is a result of sin. I do not believe that the opposition that the Jews faced was a result of their sin. However, the prolonging of it was, the continual opposition and oppression that they continued to face, I believe, was. So we must understand that every bit of what we face is a result of, of, of our sin. Jesus teaches us that. The whole story of Job is teaching us that, that his suffering shows us, shows us that. That's oftentimes, sometimes God in his sovereignty brings trials into our, excuse me, our lives for his own purposes besides the chastisement for sin. But when Nehemiah heard of the condition of the people in the city, why did he weep and why did he cry? He wept and cried not only because of the condition of the city and the people, but because of the condition of the heart of the people, because of their sin. And he repented. He confessed the sins of the people of Israel, how they sinned against God, and even his own sins that might have contributed to their own predicament. You see, Nehemiah understood that God's people were in sin, and the consequences of that sin, not looking to the Lord, fearing man, and not fearing God. And their trials, and the prolonging of those trials, were due to their sin. Do you remember Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11? It says, Have you not forgotten the exhortations that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have not participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirit and of spirits and live? For they disciplined us at a short time, and it seems best for them. But he disciplines for our good, that we may share his holiness. It goes back to the previous point. I mean, we're keeping our eyes fixed on him. He's making us more like Christ. 
and may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful. Hear, hear. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline hurts. Chastisement hurts. It's hard. And it can last long periods of time. We see a century of it here. We can get weary and we can get tired. And and that leads us into some of the most difficult seasons of our lives. But do not become embittered. Trials and the length of them will discourage you. But remember our faith in Jesus Christ. To keep our eyes on him. Because each trial and with each trial, each discipline is an evidence of what? Of sovereign grace and love. Evidence of your adoption. Again, look at Hebrews 12, 7. We just read it. If we are, if we endure, because God is treating you what? As sons. As sons. Out of love, he's disciplining us as his sons. And this is why we are as his people to be. Remembering that we are sons. So that when we are being disciplined, we will be always repenting and turning from sin and turning toward Christ and turning toward the Lord. You know, I think one of the greatest miracles and works of the Lord, we just talk about how we don't see sometimes those big hands, movements of God. But there are thousands and thousands of of the works of God in our midst. When his spirit draws you to repentance each and every time, that is a miracle of the hand of God and his mercy and his grace. When we experience the forgiveness of sin in Christ alone, So as we close chapter 4 and as we close this morning, this sermon, I want to comfort you with the words of Jesus from John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These returned exiles had their fair share of suffering. Jesus endured through opposition and suffering. The Apostle Paul, the other apostles, the early church, and the church continues to endure opposition and slander of all kinds and persecution, and still we do today. You know, the early church was called cannibals. They were called incestuous. They were called atheists. We can talk later if you want to know why the church today is called haters and intolerant and bigots and sexist and patriarchal and on and on but here are the words written to us by God words from our king who is not a king like Cyrus or Darius or Xerxes, or Artaxerxes. Those dudes have come and gone and died. And they're in the grave somewhere. Our King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He lives and He reigns on high. 
and there is no other. Our King of heaven came down from heaven, and he has overcome the world. He has defeated sin and death, our greatest opposition and enemy. Our sin, which would stand to accuse and to accuse us before a holy God, which would twist truth and accuse us so that we were guilty in ways we couldn't imagine, to discourage us with shame over and over and over again. But if you are in Christ, then know that he has overcome. And though we may face opposition, slander, hate, we still can be at peace in this world of tribulation, no matter if it is our whole life. Therefore, in Christ, we as his church, we can endure and we can persevere to the end until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. and We pray that it has its full effect in our hearts and our lives, not just in these moments of response, but for the rest of the day and weeks to come. Help us, O oh God, to, to lean into you and trusting you more when it comes to enduring and persevering in these times. Let us learn these lessons well. We praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the endurance of our Savior, the one who has gone before us, our King. And we look to him in Christ's name. Amen.